certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today in court, screens erected to block sensitive footage came down and props were brought in to show how Bradley Edwards' DNA was extracted. Natalie Bongiolo and Tim Clark joining you for day 35 of the trial, along with forensic scientist Brendan Chapman, who's going to try and explain and simplify some of today's evidence for us. Because, Tim, what you've been listening to is incredibly important to the case, but it's also incredibly complex. Yeah, yeah, uh, both those things are true. Now, it was um, it was a, uh, an important day, the first day of the DNA portion of the trial, which we've referenced so many times. Um, and right back at, at, at her opening uh, address, uh, Carmel Barbagallo, the chief prosecutor, did did warn us all that it was going to be dry. But she had to. Uh, this is what she has to do to go through all the continuity of this evidence. And uh, Justice Hall did say to her, well, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, And uh, that's what she was doing today. Um, And so the first witness was a lady called Anna Marie Ashley, um, who is the now at the moment at Pathwest is a scientist in charge of reporting, which is one of the most senior roles at Pathwest. Um, but back back in the day, back in 95, 96 and 97, she was um, uh, one of the forensic scientists that was brought in to do um, some of the testing um, on, on some of the exhibits that are, are so important to the trial. Um, and they started today with the exhibits that were taken from the, the rape victim at Karakata in 1995. Um, and all the evidence that went with that, the collection, the physical evidence that was collected, and then the the, uh, the the DNA and the, the the scientific processes that she went through to extract um, the DNA um, that we now know belongs to um, Bradley Edwards, and so that's where we started started today. Um, and it was it, at times it was quite laborious, uh, at all times very complicated. Um, but hopefully, Brendan will be able to uh, break it down for us somewhat and uh, explain exactly what she was explaining. Okay, so perhaps before we run through Ms Ashley's evidence, Brendan, could you give us a brief overview of DNA extraction from swab to a database? Yeah, sure. So um, extraction is a a small part of that process. It basically, the the very first step that we take is trying to identify the origin of um, a sample. Now, if if we believe it to have come from a um, from a body fluid of sorts, we've got a number of chemical tests we can do. So once we, we establish that, we then go on to extract the DNA. Um, from there, we then move move further down, I suppose, the, the pipeline of a DNA laboratory, um, and we do what's called a DNA quantitation assay or a quantitation test. Um, following that, because that informs us to then be able to um, do our... PCR, which is uh, uh, stands for polymerase chain reaction, and I'm going to explain this in much better detail as we move on. But um, and that's where we we copy up DNA in order to generate enough material to give us um, what we what we can test to identify a DNA profile. Once we have that DNA profile, that's then pretty simple. 
um, in terms of it's just a series of numbers that, that can sit in an Excel sheet and that can be uploaded to a database and searched against. Okay, so with that um, in mind, Tim, can you maybe start with the start of the evidence today, um, the Karakata victim, the swab, uh, where was the swab taken from? Where was that analysed and how was that done? Yeah, so um, as we've explored already during this portion of the trial, um, the victim at, at Karakata went to um, get some help, found that help um, at Hollywood Hospital just across the road from where she'd been attacked and was then taken into the custody of police um, who did various things, one thing is they took her back to the scene where they where they discovered her shorts and, and other items that had left behind. But then she was also taken to the um, the sex assault squad, basically, where she was um, where she was examined. And during that examination process, um, uh, some intimate swabs were taken, um, which were then um, became part of this um, this, this um, suite of physical evidence, which was then uh, taken by the police. Um, to the Pathwest lab. There were 23 exhibits in all that were taken to Pathwest and including in those was um, a variety of intimate swabs that had been taken from the victim. Um, some days later, or over the next few days, um, as Brendan's indicated, some initial testing was done on some of those and on one particular swab there was um, high markers and, and, and uh, significant markers for both blood and semen. And so that swab then became one of the, the main exhibits that they concentrated on at Pathwest. But that didn't happen until some months later, in fact, the following year. So we know the rape was in 95, then in 1996, Ms. Ashley was the scientist who was tasked with actually extracting the DNA from this swab um, and she described in meticulous detail how that was done which basically started with the cutting of the swab with a scalpel and then all the scientific processes that that followed that. So Brendan if you can just talk us through this part cutting the swab how does that happen and where does that go to is it put into a test tube or what happens next? Yeah so once we once we have a swab that contains the material on it, um, that's pretty much our only opportunity to identify what might be on it. And and as Tim's alluded to there, they've done testing and identified that there was um, a result indicating blood and a result indicating semen. Once we've we've got that result, um, we then basically will destroy the swab in the next series of processes that we go through. And that's where you've heard um, the story of chopping up the swab. So if you can imagine, and I think um, I've explained before, a swab looks like uh, kind of the cotton tips. Um, you need to excise the end of that cotton tip away and that then goes into a tube that's mixed with some chemicals, basically. Um, what those chemicals do is um, break open the cells that are contained within that swab. So if you imagine, um, I suppose, a stylized cell is looking like a, a fried egg, um, which is probably the one that most people have seen from high school sort of textbooks, you've got the yolk in the middle. That yolk is where the DNA lives. Um, and it's actually quite 
um, robustly packaged up in a cell in order to protect it, which is what we want. Um, we want our DNA protected. So we need to get into it. And so that's where the chemicals come into it. Um, and we use these, these chemicals and, and other techniques such as heating to break our way into that egg yolk to release the DNA into the solution. So that's why you're hearing of this swab head cut off, chopped up, put into a tube, then these reagents, these chemical reagents are added that, that do that. And Tim, from that point, um, was there then discussion about, you know, the separation of the cells and, and that kind of detail? Yeah, very much so, Nat. So as Brendan's just explained, and Miss Ashley explained in court, um, at the end of that process, they were left with two um, physical exhibits, I suppose. One with what she called a, a sperm um, fraction, and one which, which was, uh, I, I think, Brendan, correct me if I'm wrong, the epithelial fraction, and it was obviously the sperm fraction that was, which was the important one, or the one that was concentrated on later on, um, because other processes were done um, in the months that followed to amplify that um, the, those fractions and then do tests on them to basically extract the, the actual DNA and so they could get um, a, a DNA profile, which was the, the next portion of what um, uh, Miss Ashley um, explained that she, she had done. Brendan, do you want to maybe just explain the epithelial cell, what that is, what we're talking about here? Yeah, so you're, you're correct there, Tim, in, in the terminology used. Um, when I explain the, the fried egg look, that is really what most cells in your body look like. And, mo and, and most of the, well, the cells that we deal with in forensics are largely epithelial cells. Um, these are the cells that make up your skin um, all of those sort of uh, linings, I suppose, throughout your body. Um, and they're that traditional fried egg looking cell. As you know, as most people would know, a, a sperm cell doesn't look like that. And a sperm cell looks, uh, for a better description, like a tadpole, I suppose, um, and has some unique characteristics about it that are different to the fried egg cell, the epithelial cell. Now, if you remember when I spoke about putting those into that chemical cocktail, we can exploit those characteristics of the different cells in order to pop them open at various different times. So sperm cells are actually much more robust than epithelial cells. So what we can do is we can actually use a lighter or a more gentle, I suppose, chemical, pop open all of the epithelial cells and those only, remove those, and then use a harsher chemical on those sperm cells to pop them open. What that gives us is what you're hearing, which is the sperm cell fraction and the epithelial cell fraction. Okay, so with the fraction, what what happens next? Or, or, or did they say explain what happened in court next, Tim? Yeah, so... After all those samples were um, extracted and separated, they were all given um, particular identifying numbers and letters. And the sperm cell fraction is the important one. Um, that was given the um, uh, identifier of uh, 11J7, which referred to the number of the actual box that it was placed in, which was box 11, and then J7, if you imagine an old-style um, map grid, it was, it, it, was, it was 
that that's the square or that's the um, portion of the box that it was kept in. Um, so this is in '96, and then in '97 there was more testing done, which hopefully Brendan will explain to me as everyone along with everyone else, which is called the C double T triplex test, um, which I. I I think was a, a an amplification model or, or a, a more advanced DNA sampling anyway, and that was done in 1997. And from there, um, that was when the, the 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 very solid male DNA profile was um, obtained, um, along with the. The, the sample from the, the victim, which was obviously different because it was female, not male, and then these were um, entered um, into um, into the database. Um, uh, and as we know, um, the identity of that um, that male DNA was not known for more than um, twenty years, um, but it did become very important in the whole macro investigation um, because uh, because it was in that database and then when other DNA samples, particularly the one from under Kira Glennon's fingernails was run um, many years later, um, there was a, a subsequent match. So Brendan, can you, as Tim was just explaining, can you uh, talk to us about that process where the further testing was done and the CTT triplex? So once we've got our DNA extracted out of the cell, that's when we can now manipulate it to, in order to analyse it. Um, we still, and in all DNA analysis, pretty much across any technique, whether you're um, studying cancer or, or undertaking forensic tests, what you need to do is um, what we call amplify up how much DNA you have. Um, because natively, there's just not enough of it. So the, the best comparison we can use to explain how this works is, is using a photocopier um, where you, you start with one copy and you put it into a photocopying machine and imagine you had the photocopying machine set to two. So you, you, you copy off two copies and then you grab those copies and you put those back into the feeder and you copy it again and you end up with four and then you take the four and you end up with eight and so on and so forth. So we go through this doubling technique um, in the laboratory which is called PCR and you're going to hear all about PCR throughout the case um, and various techniques for PCR but this is polymerase chain reaction and this is a well-established technique in molecular biology um, where we copy up the DNA and then once we've got our kind of stack of photocopied DNA we then have enough to analyze it which um, in this case um, this this test is um, quite a quite an old technique, mm -hmm. um, but you're essentially looking at three areas um, within the the DNA to identify individualities between one person and another. To give you some perspective, um, that was three areas that were looked at. Then shortly after that we started looking at 10 areas of DNA and now we look at in, in excess of 20 areas of DNA. So this is kind of where we've come since 96. And there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, Tim, of, um, of genotyping. Uh, is that still a current thing? 
Yeah, genotype is just a, a word used to explain um, really the, the, the result that we're getting. So a genotype is an explanation of what the DNA is. So um, in the case of this test, it might be three pieces of information. In a more modern test, there'd be 20 pieces of information. Those pieces of information give us what's called a genotype. It's like a blueprint, I suppose. Yeah. Tim, I think, I guess the question people might be asking is, why is it so important that the prosecution outline these processes and procedures at such great detail? Well, uh, multiple reasons for that. I mean, firstly, they've got to prove to the court that the, that the, the processes they went through were um, solid enough to get um, proper results obviously um, because if the results are errant um, and, and this the, the DNA doesn't in fact match then the whole case um, is, is at risk the second is the, the solidity of these processes is also being challenged from a continuity um, standpoint so who touched these samples how many times were they touched and most critically uh, was there any chance that any of these samples when they were being processed could have been contaminated either by one of the scientists doing the tests or more critically from the, um, another sample because th that's where the prosecutor uh, that's the way the defense um, is, is going with its line of questioning um, and and thirdly it's 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 an interesting history lesson, I think, in how far DNA technology has come um, in, in a relatively short time. Um, as Brendan explained, this CT, and I was explaining court today, this triplex test only um, pointed to or looked for uh, a, a finite number of, of, of areas. Um, and the, the modern test, which I'm sure Brendan will be able to explain, the PowerPlex 21 test, which is the one done now, looks at a lot more areas. And the very last thing we heard from in court today, we got, we saw for the first time in public, Mr. Edwards's DNA profile flashed up on the screen. And Mr. and, and, and Miss Ashley was asked to point out um, the, 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 the areas on this triplex test that, that um, matched um, the, the modern day PowerPlex 21 test, which was done after Mr. Um, Edwards was arrested, and she pointed um, across the uh, uh, across the two tests and showed where they they matched exactly. And then she was asked to do the same with um, the, the the DNA profile of the of the Karakata victim as well. So so it was it was it was a long time getting there, but uh, right at the end of the day, that's that's where they were leading up to, is that all this DNA testing um, had, had, had extracted this unknown male DNA. And then Ms. Ashley was right at the end of the day able to point to Mr. Edwards' DNA and say, yes, that bit matches, that bit matches, and that bit matches. Was the witness asked specifically about the possibility or any evidence of contamination? Yes, she was. Um, and, and that was the, the, the denouement of her, her, her questioning as, as well as the showing of this DNA profile. Um, she was asked during uh, the, the testing um, the original testing, what, what, did anything extraordinary happen? And, and Ms. Ashley said no. And then she said, uh, reviewing all those test results from all those years ago, is there any sign of any um, contamination um, from another sample or from different samples? And again, she said there was nothing there that indicated um, 
indicated there was. Um, so um, that, that's where we, we left off um, today. Um, but uh, Miss Ashley's got a fair way to go in her evidence. Um, uh, she'll be back again tomorrow. This raises an interesting question um, from one of our listeners who's uh, got a question for Brendan, which is, in the case that a particular sample is contaminated with DNA other than Bradley Edwards, can it be determined that there was a greater quantity of DNA that belongs to that person as opposed to the other person who's got some DNA there as well? That's a really good question. Um, Yes is probably the short answer because when we look at a DNA profile that contains DNA from more than one person and we can start to work out who um, has contributed what uh, components of that DNA, we get uh, an indication of how much signal is there um, or how like how high that that resolution is I suppose and so for instance if you have signal from person A that is twice as high as signal from person B you can infer that there's twice as much DNA from person A there than person B. Another question is if one DNA sample contaminates another what happens to the resultant sample? Yeah, You would expect to see basically a mixture of both of those individual samples. So if sample A contaminated sample B, whatever is in sample A, whether that's one person, two people, whatever the source is, you would expect to see that in then the subsequent sample B. That explains it. Cool. (laughs) I I mean, it's very complex and and we're not scientists and it must be very uh, difficult for everyone, including the the legal teams who are also not scientists, and and you know, I guess people are trying to understand information which takes um, years and years of university study. How hard would it be for a layman to be understanding this? I guess that's why we we're, we don't have a layperson's jury in in a case like this, um, and it's also why we we actually see a bit of a trend for a lot of keen. Um, students to undertake both law and science studies because it, uh, I think it is a really good double barrel degree. Yeah, and I am a layman now, and I can tell you I was struggling today to keep up with, with some of the explanations. As uh, and I've got to say, Miss Ashley was a, a, a really expert witness. She, she was explaining it in such a way that we were the, the, the journalists in court were able to grasp it just um, but it's an interesting uh, topic that Brendan raises there because because DNA is more and more central to more and more cases the senior counsel who run these type of cases do become quasi experts in it and there are I, I know of a, a handful in Perth that, that that really know their stuff on, on DNA um, because they have to. And, and that goes for defence lawyers as well, um, that, that almost specialise in DNA cases because it is um, such a boom industry in the legal industry, you know, in legal circles, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, uh, it, it is very complicated um, and and. Miss Ashley was able to give her evidence in such a way today that we we grasped it, and certainly Justice Hall was asking all the pertinent questions um, that you would expect of him. Um, uh, but 
was also asking some that that had occurred to me as well in terms of general process um um you know what were you know what what titles were being used for certain processes as well so he could get it all, all clear in his mind um and uh, maybe come back to me in a few months to see how much more expert I am. But um, I'll have uh, yeah. an exam for you, Tim. Oh well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think I think I'd have a good shot at, uh, at passing it if the if day one of the DNA evidence is anything to go by. Do um, lawyers and the likes come to you for a crash course uh, if they really do feel that they need this additional knowledge? The the DPP has a really close relationship obvious, obviously with the other government departments and, and there's ongoing um, professional um, training, I suppose, professional development that they undertake. Um, I'm not sure in, in the way of defence lawyers. Um, we occasionally get approached uh, by defence lawyers for, for expertise um, to assist them in sometimes just clarifying a report. In other cases, they, you know, they, they want us to to have a much more um, involved role in, in, I suppose, rebutting um, a, a prosecution report. But the thing is, at the end of the day, most the science is pretty sound. The, the laboratories are doing things with all due process. If, if I was to comment on a prosecution report or a report from a, a government agency, in most cases, I would agree with it. Yeah. Um, Tim, will Miss Ashley be cross-examined tomorrow? Um, yes, eventually. Um, so her first, um, the next portion of her evidence-in-chief um, will be her um, involvement in the extraction of the DNA from Miss um, Glennon's fingernails. She was, she was um, very involved in that, as was Laurie Webb, um, her colleague, um, at the time. And so that's where we'll get to uh, first thing tomorrow. Um, she was um, involved in that process of, uh, I think, swabbing um, those those samples. Um, and there was some extraction done um, at, at the time as well. Um, and so obviously that's that's absolutely vital um, to both sides of the case. So that's where we'll get to first thing in the morning. How long that will take, we're not not entirely sure. Um, but yes, eventually, obviously, she will be she will be cross examined, um, and uh, and that, I mean that will be very important to both sides too. Yeah, I mean this will be critical because um, this is where the defence will want to show that that DNA at some point came into contact or became cross contaminated with um, Kira Glennon's fingernail exhibits. Yeah, well, they'll try. They'll try to get there, and they'll try to unpick some of the processes that that Ms. Ashley went through today. Um, um, because the storage of these the exhibits that we've been talking about today is also obviously vital because um, that is where Mr. Edwards's um, DNA was first introduced to Pathwest um, because obviously all, all the process that we talked about today happened in 1995, 1996. Um, um, and some of them in 1997, and, but the original ones were also uh, obviously before any of the murders had taken place. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's where we'll get to, um, and, and that's where, where um, uh, Mr. Jovich and, and Genevieve Cleary, his offsider, will um, will no doubt head when when they get their chance to uh, to cross examine. All right. Well, before we go, uh, we do have a question for you, Tim, which is. 
back to um, your area of expertise as opposed to forensic science, <laughs> is it permitted for some of those unanswered questions, for example, when Edward's first wife's partner said, I feared for my life, to be answered, as in, can reporters externally seek out the answers to those lingering lines of questions that aren't solved in court, particularly as there is no jury that could be swayed by reporting? Yeah, um, that is a good question, and the answer is yes. Once once a witness is um, allowed to leave court, um, that is, they, they, they are dismissed as a, as a witness um, or excused. Um, but that is their involvement in the case done. Um, there, there, there can be uh, times when a, 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 a witness will be excused, but not um, totally excused, so they can be recalled. Um, but, for instance, in the exa- in example the, the questioner uses, um, for Mr Edwards' um, wives, for instance, um, they would be now free to talk to us if they wished to. Now, whether we would publish that material um, while the trial is ongoing, that's, that, 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 that's another question, and that, that would be an editorial question that we'd have to weigh up. Um, but as the questioner also points out, there is no jury um, in this case. Um, and so it, it's basically legally accepted that a judge cannot be swayed by media reporting one way or the other in terms of a, vic- of a, of a verdict, um, whereas a, a jury obviously can be. Um, so, yes, we, we would be at liberty to go and search out um, Mr. Edwards' wives uh, and any other witness that had, 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 had finished um, from now. Um, but to be honest, we're so busy, uh, we're so busy reporting on the day to day that um, that I'm not sure that has actually uh, taken place. But uh, but once uh, once the trial winds down, I can assure you that uh, I, myself and, and many other of my media colleagues will be uh, will be searching out uh, certain uh, certain witnesses to see if they want to um, to want to give us some more information. Yes. Thank you both for today and thank you for joining us for day 35 of Claremont in Conversation. I'll be back tomorrow with Tim and Alison Fan to wrap up week eight. Chat to you then. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.